Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, qualifications for elders. Our context is this. In chapter 2, Paul has just finished talking about how he wants all of the people in Ephesus to pray for all sorts of people, including kings and governors. He wants decorum in the assembly. He wants the men to pray without arguing all the time. He doesn't want the women to teach or exercise authority over men. And so he's talking about church practice, church behavior, behavior in the church. And now he goes to the next logical topic, which is in chapter 3, qualifications for overseers of the church. We start with verse 1, 1 Timothy 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. What saying is trustworthy? Some people say that refers to the last verse in 1 Timothy 2. John Gill and Adam Clark suggest this, or mention this. 1 Timothy 2.15 says this, But she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good judgment. That's a difficult verse, but my opinion is is that Paul was talking about instead of wanting to teach men or exercise authority in the church, she should exercise her role as matriarch of the domestic sphere. And that saying is trustworthy. Could be that this is ambiguous. Or it could be what comes following. This saying is trustworthy, colon, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Now, these sayings that Paul keeps mentioning, in the pastoral epistles, he mentions five such trustworthy statements. People must have got these little slogans together. They didn't have all of the written scriptures, and they would crystallize the teachings of the gospel in these sayings. And one of them, maybe, is if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Now, aspires is a strong Greek word, as Ellison points out. It means reaches for, sets his heart on. Adam Clark says it means an earnest, eager, passionate desire to be an overseer. Jameson Fawcett Brown says it means to stretch oneself forward to grasp. It almost sounds like Paul is saying if anyone lusts to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Now, I always have a question about this because I've been an overseer before, and I want to tell you something. That's a thankless job. Everybody wants you to solve all the problems. If people got a problem, instead of working it out themselves, they come to you because you're the guy that's the leader. And with much rank comes much responsibility and all of that. And so it's a pain in the neck. I remember seeing one guy one time who was manifestly unqualified to be an elder. And he's looking at me. He says, oh, I want to be a pastor so bad. And he goes on and on. And I'm thinking, what is the matter with you, man? Why would you want such a thankless task? But Paul says if you desire to do that, it's a noble work. Now, I think the reason that Paul was saying this is because I think that there was a lot of people that didn't want to be an overseer, and he's trying to encourage them to do it. And I think that's a much better attitude to take than the people who lust after positions of authority in the church. So Paul is trying to encourage people, start desiring to be an overseer. It's a good thing. Well, why would people not want to be an overseer back then? Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. It is strange that the episcopacy, that's the overseership, the episcopy in those times should have been an object of intense desire to any man when it was a place of danger and exposure to severe labor, want, persecution, and death without any secular emolument whatsoever. They weren't paid elders, and they could get arrested. It was a thankless task, and Paul's trying to encourage them and say, no, it's a noble task. I would that without secular emolument characteristics would be true today of past paid pastors, paid clergy, hirelings, Paying clergy is the worst mistake, in my humble opinion, a church can ever make because it makes them a hired hand. And now you can boss them around and they're not like a brother. They run around sucking up to you, trying to prove that they're doing their job just like a worker does with his boss. 
It's a terrible situation. And then, of course, you have the elders' meetings without the pastor there, of course. And then you say, well, we're going to raise the salary. We're going to cut his salary. Well, you know, he's running people off with that doctrine that's unpopular, even though it's in the Bible. Well, we better cut his salary because he's not tickling people's ears enough to keep the contributions coming in. Excuse me for being cynical, but I don't believe in paid pastors. If somebody offered me a paid pastorship job right now, I said, I'll take it as on one condition, is that you don't pay me a red cent. Now, of course... I, it's not that I don't like money, it's I don't like being a slave. And I don't like how it ruins up the brother-brother relationship of people in the church. People want to give me money, that's fine. That's a whole different thing, because when giving is done without strings attached, that's what giving means. Somebody wants to give somebody money to an overseer, he's not trying to control him. At least he shouldn't be, he's just giving. Now, why would anybody want the responsibility and hassle continuing on with this theme? I don't know, but you, they better have a servant's heart. They better do it because they want to do it because they want to serve people. They want to help people. There are far too many people who want to be a leader because it makes them feel good. Oh, I have arrived. I'm a big shot. You better be humble and you better want to serve people. People do lead leadership. Young people especially or young Christians especially, they need people to guide them through the vicissitudes of this life. So it's a good thing to be an elder. But this lusting after being an elder because there might be some pay involved. You know, if if all elders, if no elders were paid any money, that might cool some of the lusting after the office that we have today for the wrong reasons. All right, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, Paul says, well, what is this overseer? What is that? Well, the Greek is episkopos. Other translations translated beside overseer that's tra- translated as bishop. Now, I'm going to emphasize the Greek words here because English translations go all over the place. And it can be confusing. We are going to see that there were three Greek words referring to exactly the same ministry, the ministry of a leader of a church. We can go to Acts 20 to prove that. We can go to Acts 20 to prove that elder, overseer, and pastor are exactly synonymous. For example, we look at Acts 20:28. 20, Paul says this to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. That Greek word for overseers is episkopos, accusative form of episkopos, has appointed you as overseers, episkopos, to shepherd, poimenein, the infinitive of poimeno, and it means to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, Paul is talking to elders here, as I'll show you that in a minute. Just take my word for it for right now. And Paul says, he has appointed you, Ephesian elders, as overseers, to shepherd the church of God. Well, shepherd is the word that, the noun form of which is translated as pastor because a pastor is someone who shepherds the sheep, who feeds the sheep. Some English translations, in fact, translate for pastors, they call the shepherd, the shepherd of the flock, pastor of the flock. So overseers and pastors are the same thing as we see in Acts 20, 28, and we see they're the same thing as elders because in Acts 20, 17, Paul says this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders presbyterus of the church. Presbyterus is the sing- plural form of the singular presbyteros. So we conflate verse 17 of Acts 20 with verse 28 of Acts 20, and we see that elders, overseers, and shepherds or pastors are exactly the same office. So you've got to be careful when you look at the English translations to know what you're talking about here, but each name emphasizes a different aspect of the elder's ministry. And elder pastors, in which since he feeds the flock, he shepherds the flock. An elder is someone who is spiritually older than the rest of the flock. 
And an overseer is somebody who manages, manages or superintends the flock. So there are different aspects of the same office. Now, and I say office, I should say the same gift. There is no such word as office in the Greek text. First Timothy 3.1 in the King James says this, This is a true saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop, and that threw me off for a long time because I kept saying, well, you know, the church is not bureaucratic, it's not hierarchical, it's not run by, it's organic, it's not run by mechanistic, legalistic, bureaucratic principles, and when you say the office of a bishop, it sounds like it's so hierarchical and so so bureaucratic. The word office is not in the Greek. And you'll notice the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as if anyone aspires to be an overseer, not aspires to the office of an overseer, but aspires to be an overseer. Big difference. An elder is a gift. He's not an office. Now, Paul said it's a noble thing to try to be an elder. And as I said earlier, Paul is trying to encourage people to become elders. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. This is, quote, a needful preface to what follows. For the office of a bishop or overseer in Paul's day, attended as it was with hardship and often persecution, would not seem to the world generally a desirable and good work. We go to verse 2, 1 Timothy 3. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able teacher. He must be above reproach. That means there's no handle for reproach, is what the Greek says. There's no handle to reproach him with. Nothing people can grab onto to beat him over the head. Unpaid taxes, secret love affair, that kind of thing. And that means above reproach not only amongst the believers in the church, but also with those outside, as we'll see later on. He must not only avoid evil, he must avoid the appearance of evil, as all lawyers are exhorted to do. I think that's a prohibition that's honored in the breach, quite frankly. But you're supposed to try to not look like you're doing something crooked, even if you are doing it. The elder must be the husband of one wife, or a one-woman man, as the Greek says. Now, there's lots of options as to what this means. It's, this phrase has engendered a lot of controversy. I just talked to an elder who was recently appointed an elder in my local church. And when I found out he wasn't an elder, I was shocked because I said, well, you look, smell, and feel like an elder. You're doing everything elders do. How come you're not an elder? And he said, well, he was divorced before he was saved. And I said, so that disqualifies you from being an elder. Huh? Well, it says right here, you need to be the husband of one wife. So you see, this is a controversy that has practical application. Now, here's some options of what Paul meant. He means you can't be a polygamist. You've got to be the husband of one wife. You can't be the husband of two wives. <laughs> well, John Gill actually says that's what Paul means. Jameson Fawcett Brown denies that. The problem with that view is that the is that polygamy was rare in Judaism in the first century. It wasn't a problem, really, and it was non-existent in Rome. At least that's what Ellison says. John Gill says it was very common amongst Judaism, so that's a historical, factual issue that I am not competent to judge. I suspect, though, that Paul's not talking about being a polygamist. I don't think that was a big problem back then. Again, I'm not qualified to say. It's a possibility. That's option, option one. Here's option two. The elder should not remarry after he's divorced because then he would be the husband of two wives. The first wife he married and then the, the, his first wife and then he would be the husband of his second wife after the divorce. Now, divorce, of course, is a big problem in the Roman Empire, so that could be what Paul's talking about. It was a problem in Judaism, too. And this option would make sense if the divorce was unscriptural. In other words, let's say the husband left his wife because... She gossiped too much. He wasn't committing adultery, but he just got tired of her. Well, hey, I, I'm not going to want to 
an elder like that in my church, but if he was the husband of, but if he got divorced because the wife was catting around on him, committing adultery on him, well, you're going to blame him for that and not let him be an elder? Here's the third option. The elder to be, the potential elder, should not be, should not have married again after his first wife died, not after his first wife divorced, divorced him, but after his first wife died. That's the third option. Adam Clark denies that option. John Gill denies it. Ellison said this was a major concern of the early church because a lot of first wives did die, medicine being what it is. But here's an argument against that. In 1 Timothy 5.14, we read this. Therefore, Paul says, I want younger women, and this is referring to widows, if you look back at verse 11 to get the context, I want the younger widows, in other words, to marry, to have children. Well, if it's all right for young widows to marry again, why would it be wrong for young men to marry again? Or men who want to be elders, why can't they marry again? Now, this actually could have been Paul's situation. His first wife could have died. We know he, we think he might have been married because it was required, you were, you were required to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin, and Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he would have a wife, and then she, let's say she dies. We don't know what happened to her, but let's say she died. Well, then Paul wouldn't be qualified to be a church leader, would he? Are you going to tell me the Apostle Paul can't be an elder in my church? He could have been divorced from his first wife. She might have left him. You going to tell me that the Apostle Paul, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you are free to remarry. So you're going to say you can't be an elder in a church? So I don't think this is a, a prohibition against being an elder if, you, if your first wife dies and you remarry. Now, in favor of that argument that a man who's remarried a second time shouldn't be an elder is that Gentiles and Jews look down on such second marriages, and the church might not have wanted to make waves in the culture. Well, well, you know, there's a lot of ways churches make waves in the culture by doing what's right. So I don't really think that's a strong argument. Here's option four, and I think this is the right option. The man must be the husband of one wife. Remember, the Greek says a one-woman man, which makes it a lot easier to understand this. He needs a one-woman man. In other words, he doesn't screw around on his wife. He doesn't go find a honky-tonk angel to get a little bit on the side. He's not doing that. And, of course, that makes sense because any man doing that, you don't want to be an elder of your church. Here's the fifth option. The elder should not be single. He must be married to one woman. He must be the husband of one wife. And if you're single, you're the husband of zero wives, so therefore you're not qualified. Do we really want to say that? A single man is not liable to be an elder. Now, perhaps Paul's fighting ascetic tendencies in Ephesus. We know that he was fighting Gnostic cults, and they tend to be ascetics and oppose marriage. 1 Timothy 4.3, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods. They forbid marriage, and Paul's trying to say, uh-uh, we don't want single people to be elders because it sounds like we're giving in to the Gnostics who say it's a sin to be married. We want clerical celibacy, in other words, like the Catholic Church. Well, cutting against that is it's much easier for married people to lead a church by example when they're married. I've, I've seen single elders before, and they constantly say, well, you know, I'm not married, so I don't know how to say. So, you know, that's a reasonable option that Paul is saying, I want married people to be elders, not single people. However, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. It's just in my opinion. The answer is, is that Paul wants his, the husband to be moral and not a philanderer. Now, I realize that sensible people can disagree on this because it's deliciously ambiguous. We need to remember that if you have to make a decision on who's going to be an elder, it's the church that makes the decision, a consensus of the church. Any of these decisions are perfectly reasonable. Any of these options are perfectly reasonable. 
And when you get to this thorny question, the church has to decide, are they going to accept this man as an elder or not? But I would just exhort to remember Dan Trotter's number one rule of hermeneutics. You always interpret a passage in the most in the least restrictive way possible. So in other words, let's let single people be elders if they're qualified. Elder good elders are hard to find. You got a qualified single person or a qualified guy that's been remarried after a because he was when he was a widower or remarried after a divorce and the divorce was not his fault, it was the the wife's fault. Are we going to say, no, you can't be an, an elder? I don't think so. I think we ought to be as loose as we can on that while still sticking to the scriptural prohibitions. Let me summarize these other four options why I don't think they're likely. First of all, the man must not be a polygamist. Well, polygamy was rare. It was not even allowed among laymen. I think that's the historical situation. At least John Gill thinks so. So that Paul's not likely going to be talking about that. How about someone who is scripturally divorced because of his wife's adultery? Why would that present a bad example to the church to let such a man be an elder? The divorce wasn't the elder's fault. It was his wife's fault. Of course, you could say, well, the man drove her to adultery. It's not the most ideal situation, I admit, but it's not a completely disqualifying situation, I don't think, because there is no man that's perfect. Again, and the other option, why is a second marriage after a first wife's death, why is that a bad example to the church? Was it the elder's fault that his first wife died on him? And being single as an elder, is that immoral? It might be better if you were married, but being single will not morally disqualify you. Jesus was single. Does that mean he wouldn't qualify for church leadership? Now, that's a good one for you. Moving on in this verse, verse 2, the elder must be self-controlled. That could be self-controlled in general, or it could be self-controlled with respect to alcohol, because in verse 3 we see the elder must not be addicted to wine. So the context tends to make you think Paul is talking about elders being self-controlled in their drinking habits. That's interesting to me. All cultures, all ages, all over ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, everybody had drunken parties. Dionysus in Greece. They were drunken parties in the New Year's Festival in ancient Egypt. Everybody loves to get drunk. I don't know why. I can't imagine why people want to get drunk. I've never done it. And it seems to be the most uninviting activity that one can think about getting involved in. But people do it. Paul says, you know, that's going to disqualify you as an elder. Elder must be respectable. That means the Greek word according to Ellison, which is kosmion, refers to respectability in, in the eyes of those outside the church. But I don't know if I would push it that far. Maybe it's inside the church, too. The elder must be hospitable. That was necessary because inns in Paul's day were notorious whorehouses, and there were few of them. That's why people say Rachel, that who had a guest house, the same Rachel, not Rachel, I'm sorry, Rahab, when Joshua and the, and the children of Israel were trying to get over into Israel, they probably people were saying she was a madam. She was running a whorehouse because that's basically what those inns were, were whorehouses. And to stay out of the whorehouse, you needed to have an individual private brother or sister to put you up in their house. Here's some examples of how important hospi hospitality was to the early Christians. 1 Timothy 5.10, talking about widows, uh, excuse me, people, widows who were being put on the list. They're well known for their good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality. Titus 1.8, this person, the elder must be hospitable. Romans 12:13 share with the saints in their needs pursue hospitality. Hebrews 13:2 don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. 1 Peter 4:9 be hospitable to one another without complaining. 3 John 1:5 dear friends you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. So take care of the strangers, be hospitable. Elders should do that. They should be an able teacher. In verse 2 
we continue with the list of qualifications. Now, when Paul says you must be an able teacher, that seems to me to do away with the distinction that many churches have between ruling and teaching elders. They say some teachers are ruling, but they can't teach, so we're just going to let them rule and not teach. But Paul here says that an elder must be an able teacher, so I don't know how you get around that requirement. He says they need to be able to teach. Elders, in fact, are linked with teaching in Ephesians 4.11, which says this, and he personally, that's God, personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now notice there's a pastors and teachers. There's an and connecting pastors and teachers, which is significant because the other gifts didn't have an and between them. A comma in the English, and the Greek didn't have commas, but it was no and there. The and shows that there's no the, man, the and makes it seem as if pastor and teacher go together as one gift. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. Now, the converse is not true. It might be possible for there to be teachers who aren't elders. Somebody could be a very good teacher, but he's not good at managing. Might not be able to manage his own household. Might not be able to manage the church of God. He's just not a, a leader type, but he could teach. Teaching, in fact, is listed as a separate gift in 1 Corinthians 12:28. And God has placed these in the church. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Next, miracles, then gifts of healing, etc., etc. So teachers are, are split out from, from apostles and prophets. Of course, they're not split out from elders, actually. The elders are not listed in the list. It could be that Paul is saying third, teachers, which is just another word for elders, the same gift. So it's not a slam dunk to say that you can have a teaching elder that's not a ruling elder. It's not a slam dunk. And I will say this. Generally, the two go together. You teach and you exercise authority, as in 1 Timothy 2.12, do not allow women to teach or exercise authority, i.e. to be an elder, because that's what elders do. They teach and they rule. They don't. You don't split the function up. You definitely can't split teaching out from it. An elder must be able to teach. You can make a case that you can have a ruling elder without a teaching elder, but it's a weak case. It's not a slam dunk case. Now, what does it mean to be an able teacher? Ellison says a well-trained, educated person. Well, you know, how well-trained and educated were the people back then in the first church, in the first century church? No, it just means that they're able to teach sound doctrine as opposed to the false doctrine the false teachers were teaching. You sit around and worry about having seminary-educated teachers, you're going to be waiting a long time for you, if, if the church is expanding quickly, which hopefully it would, will be. It's going to be a long time to get teachers. First Timothy, if you have to send them through three years and and sixty seventy thousand dollars worth of seminary bills to get them ready to go. First Timothy three three, the elder must not be addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor greedy. What does it mean that he should not be addicted to wine? Well, the Bible rails against drunkenness, but does not teach total abstinence, as the commentator Ellison says. Let me give you some scriptures. First Timothy three eight. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money. Now, that's talking about deacons, not elders, but it's the same idea. They shouldn't drink a lot of wine. That means they shouldn't get drunk. Now, that does leave room for drinking some wine. The Bible doesn't teach total abstinence, but you're not supposed to drink a lot of it, so you get drunk. First Timothy 5.23, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine. Not a lot, but a little wine because of your stomach. Wine is good for stomach. I tell you, I've been in China, and in China you get the equivalent of Montezuma's Revenge, Mao Zedong's Revenge, I guess you call it. All foreigners do. It's just an occupational hazard. And, oh, when that wine goes down your throat and hits your upset stomach, your boiling, roiling stomach, oh, does it feel so good? Ginger ale also does the same thing, and that feels good. But at any rate, we go to Titus 2-3. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not addicted to much wine. So here, the older women are not supposed to be drinking either. 
not supposed to be drinking too much. Again, it says not addicted to much wine. That leaves room for drinking a little bit of wine. All right, so that should be obvious enough. The elder should not be a bully. The NASB has should not be a brawler, likes to fight all the time. Oh, my gosh. In other words, he should be gentle. Not a bully, but gentle. Now, it's hard to be gentle and a leader at the same time. To do that, you can't pull rank on people. You have to lead by example. The elders should not be quarrelsome. You know, false teachers love to stir up controversy, and the elders, you know, a lot of men, a lot of teaching types, they love to argue about stuff. I, you know, I love to teach. I love theological issues, which means that I'm involved in controversy all the time, but I don't like to argue about things. I like to discuss things. I don't believe in getting mad about it, getting angry about it, and saying, well, I'm just, you just, I'm going to take up my marbles and go elsewhere. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. No. So, Teachers t would tend to be in situations where quarrels might happen, especially if they're fighting false teachers and not just dis disagreeing amongst themselves. But you want to be able to work out conflicts in the church and without the church, without arguing about it, but being gentle about it and showing the way. That's a fine line. That's tough. The elders should not be greedy. Well, now the false teachers were lovers of money that Paul was fighting in Ephesus. And the elders, because of their ability to teach and because of their leadership abilities, they could make money. I mean, look in America, how many of these TV pastors have made a fortune and how many times and the more money they make, the more pagans use this sad circumstance to rail against the church and say how evil the church is and how we're all a bunch of money grubbers. Well, that's why anybody that takes all that money and builds in these lives in these twenty three million dollar mansions ought to be ashamed of themselves. First Timothy three, four through five. He, the elder, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's logical. How well an elder manages his home will be reflected in how he helps manage the church. Now, what about elders who don't have a household to keep under control? For example, a widowed elder, childless, no wife, no household. How about a divorced elder? He could... And the children are all, are not, and they had no children. He doesn't have a household to keep under control. How about an elder who's an empty nest? He's got a loving Christian wife, but all of his kids are growing up. Let's say he's got, his kids are all dedicated Christians. They've left the empty nest. The wife is a dedicated Christian. He's a dedicated Christian, but he can't keep his children under control because he doesn't have any. Therefore, he can't be an elder. You see how bad this gets when you start interpreting this stuff too tightly. In my humble opinion, what this means is that an elder must keep his children under control if he has such children. If his children are not under control, this is an indication to the church that he's not capable of dealing with church matters. How about if you're a single guy again? Single guys are not going to have children, so you're not going to let single people be an elder? Paul couldn't be an elder at Antioch. He didn't have any children in his house. He didn't even have a wife. Jesus didn't have any children. He didn't have a wife. We're saying that he wouldn't qualify to be an elder. Please, let's be reasonable here. Now, let's look at another one of these elder qualification controversies. The elder must keep his children under control with all dignity. Now, I just looked at an interesting article on the Internet. Possibility is options is what Paul meant here. The elder must have a plurality of believing children. If he's got five children, three of them must be believers. He must have at least one child, and that child may or not be a Christian. He must have one child who must be a Christian, or he can have no children at all and still be qualified. And that's the position I take. So they have an example of all kinds of ways you can interpret this. 
Let me repeat Dan Trotter's number one rule of hermeneutics. Always interpret a verse as least restrictively as possible, and so that will do that here. If he has children, he's got to keep them under control, because if he doesn't, that is a canary in the coal mine that tells the church he's not going to be a good elder. And again, if you don't agree with me on this, and your church has problems with my interpretation or any other interpretations, remember, it is the consensus of the church which decides who is capable of being the elder in that church. Verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, the elder must not be, Paul continues, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, not being a new convert, this qualification is left out in the similar list of qualifications that Paul gave to Titus. Ellison speculates that on that because he says that in Crete, where Titus was, everybody was a new convert, and they wouldn't have any elders to be an elder of the flock. Now, that's a problem in places where the church is growing fast, like in China. I mean, you saw young elders all the time in their 30s. And by the way, what does new mean, a new convert? Paul doesn't give a rule here. Is a new convert one that's been saved a week, a month, a year, a decade? How do you, how do you judge that? Again, each individual church has got to make their, their judgment. And it says a new convert. It does not say a young man. You could have a 30-year-old man who's been saved since he was two years old or three years old. He's not a new convert, but he's a relatively young guy. Two different issues we need to keep straight. He must not be a new convert because he has a chan- had a chance to develop the spiritual maturity that he needs to lead a church. In fact, Paul says he will might become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. That's bad news. Let me give you a true story about this. I was speaking at a missionary complex overseas. I won't say where it was. And when we, my friend and I, we got there. Turned out the whole, everything was in an uproar. We didn't have the, the scheduled meetings weren't going to meet where they were because there was a church split because the other elder, the guy we were with, who, as far as I can tell, in fact, I know is absolutely not only credible, but honorable and respectable and hospitable and all the other qualifications of being a pastor. He had it, but he had a fellow elder that he had appointed as a young man. He, and the elder guy who was talking to us, said, I made a mistake. I should never have appointed him. He was too young because as soon as he got to be an elder, it went to his head. It's a classic case here, what Paul's talking about. A lot of young people can't handle the power. They think they're big shots when they're nothing but idiots. Well, this the, pretty soon the young elders decided that he wanted to be the top dog in the church. He didn't want the other pastor to have anything to say. He wanted to be the top dog, and so he accused the older pastor of embezzling money. And it got to be real, real nasty. Forgot all the details, but I remember thinking, oh, God, please deliver me from something like this. Well, the pastor finally got the young pastor booted out of the church, but it was with a great deal of difficulty and a lot of pain. So I just tell you that if you've got a church, you better make doggone certain that the guys that you are recognizing as elders, they better have every single qualification. Conservatively interpreted, as I've said, but still, they need to have the qualifications of an elder, and they should not be a new convert. They need to be relatively mature compared to the other people in the church. And again, how long is new? That's up to you to decide. It's a matter of judgment. Church has to decide. People a lot of times say Timothy was young and he was a church leader. Well, I did some calculations, looked on Wikipedia to see when he was born, 17 A.D. We know that Paul is writing this letter about 62, 63 A.D. or so. So Timothy was about 46 years old. That's plenty old enough to be an elder. 
Paul was about 60, so Timothy was young compared to Paul, but he was still old enough to be an elder. But even if he's 23, I mean, that's sort of young to be an elder, but maybe everybody else is 15 in the church. I know of a case right now, a sad case of a church here in America. It's a Chinese church, and Chinese churches tend to have young pastors. And one of those young pastors was in spiritual charge of one of my converts, one of my former students, and he was doing a great job with her. She was growing he was taking care of all of her emotional stuff when she broke up with boyfriends and that kind of stuff. And he was telling her not to, to date non-Christians. And he was telling her to go to church. And then he got involved with her in work, doing charity work for the COVID-19 virus. And I mean, he was just a good guy. And then all of a sudden, one day, he just tells my young student, my, my convert, I found another woman that's not my wife. And she fulfills me. And it about broke my student in half. She thought that God had left her. She couldn't trust anybody anymore. She couldn't trust marriage anymore. She thought marriage was a, an institution that was doomed to failure. She's single. And getting, getting late, getting up toward the age of 30 when she needs to get married. And all of this just hit her right between the eyes. The Chinese pastor who had decided he had found another woman to fulfill all his needs was 31 years old. And I thought, uh-uh. And he was also the single pastor in the church. He didn't have plural elders. And he didn't handle the situation well. I think the situation's got a happy ending, though. Last I heard, he had repented of his sin and, his, and mending his fences with all the people in the church he hurt, including my student. Thank God for that. And also there was another, uh, another friend of my student, whom I don't know, but she was heartbroken by the whole thing, too. And it caused her to stumble. Man, there's nothing... What did Jesus say about people who cause you to stumble? It's like having a millstone hung around your neck and, dro and you get dropped into the bottom of the sea. Don't put a young man in charge of a church by himself. He shouldn't be a new convert. He shouldn't be by himself. He should have plural elders with him. All right, enough of my ventilation. Let's go to the last part of verse 6. This elder who is not a new convert, so he won't become conceited, so he won't fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And that's what, what is that? condemnation the devil incurred he gets thrown into hell or is it condemnation the devil puts on the conceited new convert i think the latter is the answer to that i don't think an elder is going to go to hell for being becoming conceited and, and and screwing up but he can fall into condemnation the devil is going to put on you whatever that might be and i wouldn't want to know what it is now the devil condemnation incurred by the devil that if you take it to be the condemnation that is put on the devil there is a lot of scripture that says that. I'll mention one scripture which, which I think is totally inappropriate, actually. Isaiah 14, uh, 12 through 15. We'll go to 15. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. That you is said to be the devil, because in verse 12 it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. It's Lucifer in the King James, I think. That is not talking about Lucifer, in my humble opinion. That's talking about... Babylon, but it's amazing how many people say that refers to the devil. I don't. But there are other verses that show that the devil is judged. John 12, 31. Now judgment, Jesus says, is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, probably at the cross. John 16, 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I don't know exactly when, maybe at the cross. Second Peter 2, 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude 1, 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper boat, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Alright, so the devil is going to incur judgment and if you take this option then you're saying, we don't want a new convert to get judged like that because that's bad business. 
So, whoa, that means Paul really takes this prohibition of new convert, newly converted elders, he takes it very seriously. Or it could just be the judgment that's caused by the devil that might come on the on the new convert. And I think that's what Paul's talking about, actually. Can't prove it one way or the other. It just seems more logical to me. We go now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. And he, the elder, must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, the idea of having a reputation outside the church was very important to Paul. I'm going to give you a lots of places where he's exhorted to that end. 1 Timothy 6.1, All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. He was more concerned about the reputation of the church than he was in starting a slave rebellion. Titus 2.5, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So slaves were to be behave so that the doctrine wouldn't be spoken against. In Titus, the women were supposed to behave themselves so that the word of God might be dishonored. And again, Christianity is a revolutionary type faith. It liberates people spiritually, and so people might get the idea, well, since I'm liberated spiritually, let's have a little domestic rebellion, let's have a little slave revolt, let's have a little feminism in the homes, and we can tell our husbands where to jump off, that kind of thing. Titus 2, 9 through 10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Adorn the doctrine of God by your actions so that people will see that and will not look down on the church. Again, I ask every TV preacher, if I could just ask a TV preacher, are you adorning the doctrine of God in every respect? Are you causing the word of God to be dishonored? Are you causing our doctrine to be spoken against? Paul urged against that. Look at yourself in your 23 frippin' million dollar mansion. You're telling me that our doctrine is not going to be spoken against because of your heinous, asinine behavior? Of course, I'd probably be a little bit more polite than that, but that's what I'd be thinking. 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense. Don't cause people to get angry with you for no good reason. Now, they're going to get angry with you if you preach the gospel, but that's not being angry with you because you are rebellious or nasty or surly or whatever. You stole something. Colossians 4.5, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. I tell you, I've been in some bad environments all my work life. I was in liberal academia at several different universities, and they're all liberal. They're a bunch of narrow-minded, intolerant bigots towards Christians. And so I had to be very careful. And so I tried to help everybody, be nice to everybody. And I remember one time this Jewish guy, well, he wasn't a liberal. He was a libertarian, actually. We had this uh, Paul Ehrlich guy, big evolutionary biologist, and he's, he was the guy that in the 1960s said that the world, that was gonna, the population bomb was going to explode and we were all going to die and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Twenty years later, he's still speaking. He's a big shot, you know, and he comes and speaks at our college. And this Jewish libertarian professor, a friend of mine, said, well, what do you think about that? I said, well, I don't believe in all that evolutionary stuff. He said, you're a Christian, aren't you? He had already figured out I was a Christian. I'd known him for years. I hadn't said a word about it. He knew I was a Christian. And people respected me. I mean, because I tried to conduct myself with wisdom toward outsiders. I, you, know, they just, you can do it. It's possible to do. Just be nice to people. Don't get involved in controversy if you don't have to. Now, sometimes you have to. I know that. But just in general, just be nice to people. First Thessalonians 4.12, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need, Paul tells the Thessalonians. Behave properly, that means don't be a freeloading bum, but work. Work hard with your hands. Do your job. 
Timothy himself had a good reputation, as my NIV study Bible points out. In Acts 16.2, we read this. Luke says this, And he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He was well spoken of by those brethren, and that probably induced Paul to choose him to be a traveling fellow apostle, as Ellison points out. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with the qualifications to be an elder. If you're called to be an elder, I hope you will do it and do your job well. If not, I pray that God will find what your job is, what your ministry is, and you do that well. And we are finished with the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3. In our next audio, we're going to take up 1 Timothy 3, 8 through the end of the chapter, and we're going to take up what are the qualifications of deacons. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.